One night a man came to Jesus. He was an educated man, very well educated. He lived an upstanding life. And he was well respected in his community. He came to find out what Jesus was all about. And he probably expected Jesus to pat him on the back and tell him God was pleased with him and that God accepted him. Everyone else was pleased with this man. Why would God not be pleased with him? The man's name was Nicodemus. And Jesus gave him a surprise. He said to Nicodemus, the only way to be accepted by God is to be born again. None of us contributed to our physical birth. None of us earned physical life. It was given to us by our parents. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, spiritual birth, being born again, is the same. You can't earn it either. It's given to you by God. God does the work to make you spiritually alive. He does that work in those who put their trust in Jesus. Everyone who believes he is the Lamb of God, crucified to take the blame for our sin. When we acknowledge that we need a Savior and trust the Savior God has provided, then God does something only God can do. He gives us new life. We are born again as children of God. Forgiven, accepted, and heirs to eternal life. So that night, Jesus told Nicodemus how we become children of God. We don't earn that status. It's God's gift to those who trust in Jesus. And that meeting with Nicodemus is recorded in John's Gospel. And this morning, we're going to turn to another of John's writings, the first letter of John. And John is going to tell us this morning not how to become children of God, but how we are to live once we are children of God. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. In the Church Bible, that's page 1226, and in the large print, 1900. And we're going to read from chapter 2, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 10. The context here is John is writing to people who have put their trust in Jesus. They have been born again as children of God. To these men and women, John says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now... We are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, 
Just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. This is God's word. Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't earn your way to new birth. You can't become a child of God under your own steam. It's God's work. And now we learn what children of God are like. How do we recognize a born-again person? Well, John tells us two things about children of God. They live in preparation for Christ's second coming. And they live in harmony with Christ's first coming. First of all, children of God live in preparation for Christ's second coming. Last week there was a story in the news about a couple in Japan who had been on a family trip and they were trying to deal with a child who was out of control. Apparently, I don't know all the details, but he was throwing stones at other cars. In that situation, they were parents under pressure. And they apparently made a snap decision to leave their son at the side of the road for a few minutes and come back when he'd calmed down. But when they came back, just moments later, they couldn't find him. They lost him in a bear-infested forest. Thankfully, somehow the boy survived. He was found days later. But he could easily have died because of a terrible error of judgment by his parents. And as we think of that human story, it's important to realize God is not like that with his children. I don't know what those, uh, that Japanese couple were like normally as parents. Maybe they were normally good parents. They made a terrible decision. But even the very best human parents get things wrong sometimes. But God never does. Human parents don't get to choose their children. But God has chosen his. And he will not forsake them. Look again at chapter 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
One day Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem and at that time King Herod was having the temple rebuilt. It was an impressive structure he was putting together. Historians tell us the stones of the temple were 37 feet high and 18 feet wide. And as the disciples walked around that building, they were awestruck by it. They said to Jesus, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. John would have been there that day. And here he uses the same kind of language to talk about God's love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. His love is great in two ways. It's great because it's totally undeserved. God owed us nothing but punishment. And his love is great also because he gives so generously. God does not measure his love out with a spoon. He lavishes it on us. And you can see John's amazement when he says, we're not just called children of God, that is what we are. It's a fact. It's not pretend. Sometimes today a person will agree to marry another person so they can get citizenship in a certain place. And when that happens, it might be a kind gesture, but everybody knows it's not a real marriage. It's just an agreement. But we need to see that is not how it works with God and his people. Our new birth is not just an arrangement to get us out of trouble so we can escape punishment for sin. No, we really are God's children, the Bible says. He loves us with a true parent's love. And he is the perfect parent. When Jesus rose from the dead, he returned to heaven and he promised to come back for God's children. And sometimes our lives now can feel like we are abandoned in a bare infested forest. This world can seem like a cruel, frightening place at times and it is that often. But we need to know we have not been abandoned. Not only does God remember us, he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. This world is allowed to go on as it is because of God's patience. He has not gone away in exasperation. He hasn't given up. He hasn't turned his back on the world. This is a time of opportunity. It's a time when others can still turn to Jesus and become children of God. But what we need to realize is Christ is coming back. In his great love, God will keep his promise. He will return for his children. And what do his children do in the meantime? John says, we show whose children we are. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. How do we make sure we're confident and unashamed at his coming? We live lives that reflect God's character. 
We live like children of God. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. At the time John was writing, the vast majority of children did what their parents did. If your dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your dad fished for a living, you would grow up to fish for a living. And so, if you were known as a child of someone, that was a way of saying you shared the characteristics of that person. It might not be your physical parents. In the Old Testament, Belial meant worthlessness. And so, in Old Testament times, if somebody was a nasty piece of work, you called them a son or a daughter of Belial, a child of worthlessness. Their lives showed that they belonged to the worthless family. And Jesus nicknamed two of his own disciples the sons of thunder. Their personalities showed they belonged to the thunder family. Jesus called some other people children of the devil. And here the point is, children of God will be confident and unashamed when they meet God because they have lived like children of God. Their lives have shown godly characteristics. They have done righteousness. They have been like their righteous father. But John says Christ's return will not only be a time for God's children to be unashamed. When he returns, we will be changed. Chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says, We have a privileged status already. We're children of God, and we have a glorious destiny still ahead of us. We will be like Christ. We will not just see him in his glory, we will join him in his glory. We will be glorious too. And so, we must not live as if this is all there is. We have to live with one eye on the horizon. One day we will be conformed to the image of God's Son. To some degree, that process is already underway. We are not what we used to be. But at Christ's return, we will be what we can hardly even imagine today. If you are trusting in Jesus, then one day you will be like Jesus. And what does that mean for us today? Verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. If we are children of God, then today we pursue the purity we're going to receive. We're already moving towards our destiny. We're reaching out for that purity we're going to have one day. We're not going to get all of it in this life, but we want as much of it as we can in this life. If Christ's likeness is our future hope, 
then we want to be as like him as we can be here and now. That is a mark of God's children. That is what God's children want. Our future destiny excites us. And so we are excited now by small steps toward that destiny. We work hard to put aside the deeds of darkness. We do all we can to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so we're careful what we watch and what we listen to because we don't want to invite impurity into our minds. We persevere with godly habits and we get serious about breaking ungodly habits. We focus on using our tongue to build up and to heal, not to tear down and destroy. In every area of their lives, children of God pursue the purity we are going to receive. This is how Martin Luther described our experience of living in preparation for Christ's return. He said, we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That is the attitude of God's children. That is what drives the behavior of God's children. We are busy becoming the people we're going to be. We're already reaching out for the conformity to Christ that we're going to have someday. John has pointed forward to Christ's second coming. And now, in our passage, he points back. He says, children of God live in harmony with Christ's first coming. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did he take off the trappings of his divinity and take on human weakness? Born as a helpless child in a dirt poor family. It wasn't for the fun of it. Verse 5 says, He came so that he might take away our sins. There's no sin in him. And he came to make us like him. And so then, a life of sin is totally incoherent for a child of God. It makes as much sense as a square circle. It is incongruous. God's children and sin don't fit together. Sin in our lives is not in harmony with what Christ came to do. 
The word sin has lost a lot of its meaning today. To most people, sin means either the really bad stuff other people do, or it means the stuff I really enjoy, like a slice of chocolate cake. Uh, It's a sin. I'm on a diet, but I can't resist it. But that is a long way from what the Bible means by sin. And here in verse 4, John gives us the truth about sin. Sin is lawlessness. Your slice of chocolate cake is not sin. Enjoy it. But your envy is sin. Your lies are sin. And your lust, your bitterness, your cheating, all of that is defiance of God and his word. Sin is lawlessness. It is no place in the life of God's children. And so John says in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. We can't just skim over that statement. It's pretty striking. Literally it says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. What does John mean? Well, whatever he means, he means it in the context of what he says in the rest of this letter. And back in chapter 1, he said this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John has already said, we are not sinless. And yet here in chapter 3, he tells us, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Imagine for a moment we all lived near a shark pool. And there are at least two known sharks in there, maybe more. But regulations prevent anyone from moving the sharks. It's their pool and you're not allowed to disturb them. So signs are put up around the pool, no swimming, sharks. I suppose you're walking past the pool one day and you spot someone doing the backstroke in there. You run to the side and you scream at that person, you do not swim here. The swimmer turns to you and says, well, I do actually. I'm swimming right now. I swam here last week as well. What do you mean I don't swim here? Well, of course, what you're trying to get across to that person is not that it's physically impossible for them to swim in the pool. You're trying to tell them swimming does not belong in this pool. It does not fit the situation here. There is no circumstance in which swimming is okay here. I can see you're in the water doing the backstroke, but you do not swim here. That is very close to what John is getting at here in our passage. He is not saying it's impossible for children of God to sin. He knows we do sin. But he wants us to see there is no place for sinning in our lives. Sinning is not okay for God's children. Jesus came to take away our sins, not to make our sins okay. 
So sinning does not belong in God's family. Sinning is not done here. It's as out of place as swimming in a shark pool or smoking in a nuclear reactor. You and I live in harmony with Christ's first coming when we do not reconcile ourselves to sin. If we woke up in the morning to find an escaped criminal camped out in our living room, we would not reconcile ourselves to that situation. We wouldn't just shrug our shoulders and head off to work. We wouldn't bring them back chips when we got home from work. We would do something to change the situation. And when you and I find sin in our lives, we do not reconcile ourselves to that situation. We don't make a truce with sin. We don't agree to live and let live when it comes to sin in our lives. We do not become lethargic or apathetic or lighthearted about sin in our lives. We treat sin in our lives as an enemy that doesn't belong. Because it is an enemy that doesn't belong. And so we don't give it peace. We are intolerant towards it. Our aim is not to restrict sin in our lives or limit it to a little area of our lives. Our aim is to drive it out of our lives. Because Jesus Christ appeared so that he might take away our sins. Being complacent about a little sin in our lives is like being at ease because, well, we're only going to do two lengths of the shark pool. We're not going to do a mile. John says in verse 6, if we are content to give sin a place in our lives, we have neither seen Christ or known him. If we had, we would hate the sin he came to destroy. Sin put Jesus on the cross. How could God's children be comfortable with sin? That kind of attitude is against our nature as children of God. And then John gives us another angle on the same reality. We live in harmony with Christ's first coming when we do not participate in the works of the devil. Look at verse 8 again. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Jesus came not just to take away our sins, he also came to destroy the Lord of sin. That's who the devil is. And Jesus defeated him at the cross. The devil fights on, we know that, but we also know he is fighting for a lost cause. 
And so why would we join him in his work? That's what sin is. It is devilish work. John says it's for children of the devil. It is not the work God has for his children. God has called us to join him in building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why would we give our lives to the rubble of Satan's kingdom? That's not what we're for. We serve an eternal kingdom. Satan's kingdom is going nowhere. Why would we participate in the works of his kingdom? That's what sin is. It's giving ourselves to something that's already decaying and rotting. Something Christ came to destroy. Every spiteful word that I speak, every feeling of contempt you have for a brother or sister in Christ, every maneuver we pull to try to push ourselves in front of others, that is joining the devil in his work. We have to see that. But here's the positive side to this. We don't have to participate in the works of the devil. We are not doomed to be defeated by his temptations. We're not forever bound by old habits. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is with us in our struggle against the devil. God's children never fight alone. And when we fight against the devil, we are fighting on the winning side. How do we become God's children? It's a gift given to all who trust in Jesus. And what do God's children look like What is the evidence someone has become a child of God? Children of God live in preparation for Christ's second coming. And they live in harmony with Christ's first coming. They pursue purity despite all their failures. They pursue purity because one day they will be perfectly pure. And they turn away from sin again and again. Because they know Christ came to destroy sin. Let's pray. Father, we know this passage is striking and blunt. But we know this passage is not here to demoralize us. It's not here to crush us. But it is here to make things very clear for us. Your word tells us your children are not sinless, but your children long to be sinless. They make every effort to defeat sin and to turn away from sin. We do that because Jesus came to destroy sin. We know that sin is a sinking ship. It's no part of the future for God's children and we don't want it in our lives now. And so we ask you as your children, give us a new love for what is pure and lovely 
and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. And give us a new distaste for what is impure and shameful and shady and devilish. We want our lives to show who our Father is. We want to give evidence you are our Father. And so we ask you to come. Breathe fresh life into us by your Spirit. As we go from here, we go to love and serve as children of God. Children who've had the lavish love of God poured out on us. Children who have our arms stretched out for Christ's return. And we know that as we do it, you are with us. Amen.